This is Eli Lake, and today's re-education is about the red pill. My guest is candidate for Congress in New York City, Maud Marin. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. This is, of course, a seminal scene from the 1999 movie The Matrix. For Gen Xers like me, it's a classic. Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, is given a choice. He can take the blue pill and continue to live in a computer-generated dreamland, or he can take the red pill and choose to learn a terrible truth. Human beings are now grown like crops and harvested by superintelligent machines for their energy. They are kept in a permanent state of delusion, believing they are living a normal life on planet Earth while wasting away in a cocoon sucked dry of their life force plugged into the Matrix. Now, this is a concept, at least, that goes back a really long way in human culture. It's a painful truth that upends a comfortable lie. Think of Eve's conversation with the serpent in the Garden of Eden, or Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Marxists used to talk about false consciousness to explain how a segment of the working class does not understand the nature of their exploitation. Neoconservatives would talk about being mugged by reality when an otherwise well-meaning liberal would learn that progressive policies had led to mayhem and anarchy. Today, the red pill is a persistent metaphor in our politics, and it means a kind of conversion. Someone who once subscribed to a pleasant consensus, but now understands that much of it was a pack of lies. This thing started in the late 2000s and early 2010s. It lived on fringy internet forums. Red pilling was a way to identify with, for example, the men's rights movement, a cause that seeks to redress what it claims is the misandry of modern feminism. There was a red pill subreddit, and at its peak it had more than 300,000 members. And all kinds of other internet weirdos would adopt the meme. Nonetheless, it was pretty marginal stuff. It was a big deal online, but it, red pilling as a concept was still boutique. Yet, then, during Donald Trump's presidency, the idea of red pilling, well, it went mainstream. Remember Kanye West and his MAGA hat, his visit to the White House, his quote-unquote slavery was a choice? Here's Red Pill Kanye in 2018 during a performance on Saturday Night Live. Thank y'all for giving me this platform. I know some of y'all don't agree, but y'all be going at that man neck a lot, and I don't think it's actually that helpful. I think the universe has balance. 90% of news are liberal. 90% of TV, LA, New York, writers, rappers, musicians. So it's easy to make it seem like it's so, so, so one-sided. Another forerunner in the Trump years was Brett Weinstein. He's a professor, or was a professor, 
of evolutionary biology at Evergreen State University, who in 2017 objected to a so-called day of absence, where only people of color would be allowed on campus. Weinstein argued that any campus policy that excluded teachers and students based on skin color was wrong. For that, he was denounced as a fascist. Here's a snippet from an excellent Vice documentary segment on his travails from 2017. Weinstein has taught at Evergreen State for 14 years. He describes himself as deeply progressive, but has been denounced as a racist tool of the alt-right by some students and faculty. Weinstein objected to the day of absence in a formal protest email to colleagues, arguing that, quote, one's right to speak or to be must never be based on skin color. Calls for his resignation followed. By virtue of the way they constructed this, you were making a statement by being on campus that you were not an ally. And I feel like I am an ally to people of color in their attempt to gain equity. Fast forward to 2020. That's when we had the pandemic, the George Floyd protest and riots, and of course, the 2020 election. Now, at this point, red pilling has taken another turn. Now, many liberals, like Weinstein, for example, were also taking this red pill. And yeah, there were, of course, nuts in QAnon who believed nonsense conspiracy theories about pedophile rings and so forth. But there was also a sort of normie insurrection. They were not Trump voters, and I want to make this very clear. These were people who were not persuaded in any way by his con about the 2020 election. But they were red-pilled nonetheless. They could not continue to politely nod along with the new diktats of the radicals in their newsrooms, workplaces, and schools when it came to race, gender, and precautions during the pandemic. Lots of lifelong Democrats were being red-pilled by the insanity of the cultural and political zealots all around them. Here's a furious parent last year at a Loudoun County, Virginia school board meeting addressing the board about mask mandates. People in here with their like face lace and their face shields that are plastic, not stopping anything, all you want is submission to a lie. Now, it's the red-pilled liberals that I am interested in. One of the leaders of this normie insurrection is my good friend Barry Weiss, and she's used her substack to highlight the stories of many of these brave professionals who have taken on the new radical groupthink. Last year, she told the story of today's guest, Maud Marin, a longtime public defender in New York City who had run afoul of her employer, the New York Legal Aid Society. Now, Maud's sin, and sin is the right word here, was that she had supported keeping competitive admissions tests for selective public schools in New York City, like Stuyvesant. And she opposed then-Mayor Bill de Blasio's proposal to do away with these tests because, according to de Blasio and his many supporters, they were evidence of systemic racism. Now, I don't mean to get into this particular argument here, but let's just say that Maud Marin, for having what I think is a completely respectable and defensible position, was blackballed. She was called a racist by her own union and members of her own legal aid society where she's working as a public defender. And it's strange because Maud Marin is a lifetime progressive. She worked as a volunteer for Bernie Sanders in 2016. When she was in law school, 
She was a research assistant to former Black Panther Kathleen Cleaver and helped her research a paper that she'd published on Mumia Abu-Jamal, who is a sort of cause celeb of the left, particularly the European left, in the 1980s and 1990s for his case where he was convicted of killing a Philadelphia police officer. Now Maud Marin is running for Congress in a crowded primary field for New York's 10th Congressional District. She has many opponents in this race, including Bill de Blasio himself. But she is really the only one who is kind of campaigning as a Democrat for normalcy. She wants to keep the schools open, unmask the kids, and she says that she supports equality of opportunity. These used to be pretty mainstream values for Democrats. But unlike many New York City liberals in 2022, who will quietly just roll their eyes when an activist or politician quote the latest anti-racist gospel from people like Ibram X. Kendi or Robin D'Angelo, Maud Marin won't keep quiet. She speaks up and she faces the consequences. That's why I admire her, because she has foregone the pleasant and comfortable consensus of her community for the more difficult path of pursuing what she believes is true. Maud has taken the red pill. And I suspect, or I should say I hope, that we will find in November that many other voters around the country have taken that red pill as well. Well, on today's show, we are really, really lucky to have Maud Marin, who is running for Congress from the New York's 10th Congressional District. One of her opponents in the primary will be the former mayor, Bill de Blasio, a longtime progressive public defender, a mom, and somebody who has, in the last few years, shown real courage in taking on some of her own colleagues on her own side for what she thought, what she has articulated as a very kind of extreme ideological purity test approach to politics. Maud, thank you so much for coming on The Reeducation. Why, thank you for inviting me. So I want to start off, if we could, and just talk about, I guess I would say, why, how did you become red-pilled? I don't consider you a conservative by any stretch, but you have broken with, I guess you could say, a kind of social group of progressives in New York and are now kind of, you know, a common sense liberal. Yeah. And how did that, so tell me about that. How did that happen? I think it's happened to me a little bit earlier than some other folks, but I think I'm just towards the head of a pack of a lot of people who are following down the same road, <laughs> really. Okay. And for me, you know, it started with education battles because I ran for my school board and I came up against a really a well-organized and a very vicious <laughs> group of education activists in New York City and specifically, this is about merit-based admission. Merit-based education. School. And yes. it, the language that they used was integration and segregation, right? They were sort of saying that New York City schools were segregated, obviously not by law, not officially, but in reality, because you have some schools that are high performing and that have very few Black kids in them and many schools that are very low performing and have lots of Black students in them. And of course, they always left out any other analysis other than racism, right? right. It always boiled down to racism. 
And if you're trying to solve for racism alone and not looking at all the other factors, you're going to do a really bad job and you're going to do what happened in New York City public schools, which is things were made worse by remedies that weren't nuanced, smart, tailored or designed to actually improve education. So I, you know, I started in that fight. I joined that school board in 2017. And then by two, the end of 2018, Bill de Blasio was trying to get rid of the specialized high school tests and gifted and talented programs, all in the name of equity, which, of course, his plans made schools worse for all students, but particularly poor minority students who don't have the resources and the ability to overcome the deficits of a, a poor public school education the way middle class families might. But that that education battle sort of bled into the open schools battle. And as a mom with four kids in the public schools, I watched my kids sitting at home on the couch, separated from their friends, with their sports program closed down. My daughter's dance program was closed down. My son's chess program was closed down. And it was all supposed to be Zoom. And I had to listen to Bill de Blasio say, we're the gold standard for reopening. Mm-hmm. And I could look around and see my, my I have a niece and nephew. If you live in London, I have a niece and nephew who live in Wisconsin. I have family in in Long Island, people in Florida. Schools were open normally all over the place while my kids were home on the couch. And along with a lot of other mothers, mostly mothers, dads too, but a lot of moms, we noticed that we were being lied to, (laughs) to put it really simply. Well, that's the key to red pilling, right? Is that there's a certain moment when you sort of wake up and you realize, wait a second, I've been believing this illusion. What else are they not telling me, right? Right. So for me, it was like those, the education battle and then the open schools battle and you start battling politicians. And in New York, it tends to be Democrats, almost overwhelmingly, Democratic politicians who are progressive, who are using language that I had used to describe myself for decades of the left and progressive Mm -hmm. and I mean, you were you were a Bernie Sanders volunteer in 2016, right? A big Bernie Sanders fan. If you if you look at who I donated to, it was all Bernie Sanders. And I just want to tell for our listeners, Maud, as a law school student at Cardozo, worked with Kathleen Cleaver, who is the widow of Eldridge Cleaver, one of the founders of the Black Panthers. And you devoted your professional career until you 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 left become a mom to defending people in New York courts who couldn't afford a lawyer. Right were often immigrants, were often the very victims of the systemic racism and other kinds of forms of oppression. And so you're coming at this as somebody who was really a person of the left. I, mean, I just want to make that very clear. 100%. <laughs> like, and the, you know, probably one of the biggest red pill, to use that analogy, that, you know, moments is watching the governor of Florida keep the schools open and make what I thought were a series of really good decisions around managing the COVID pandemic in a way that I don't think anyone, any of my local state or even our federal, you know, government made in ways that impacted me here in New York, right? Our teachers union in New York got gobs of money Mm-hmm. Um, and then still and got in the front of the line, healthy young UFT workers were prioritized right. over the elderly in New York, which I think is a, a a public health travesty. And they made better decisions in Florida. And I was, you know, 
Ron DeSantis was like the boogeyman of the left. We were, I was busy watching Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow on NBC when the Trump administration started and being horrified by all the things that my fellow Democrats were horrified by. But then reality starts to creep in. And particularly when it's your kids who are bearing the brunt of bad decisions, right? If my kids were in school and were normal and healthy and happy, and I was being endlessly inconvenienced by stupid mask wearing or by rules, like having my vaccine card at the restaurant, which is annoying and which is actually a real privacy issue that I don't mean to minimize it because it's very significant in terms of where our our future is going in terms of our ability to keep our medical health data private. But in terms of how it affected my everyday life, it annoyed me, but I dealt with it. And if we've put aside the sort of bigger issues that it, that it implicates, but that's not what happened. What happened is my children and all of the children in New York City, particularly public school children, because Catholic schools and private schools were able to get, and some charter schools were able to get kids back in school faster and better. Our kids bore the brunt of bad policy. And when, you, when you're hurting the kids, you're going to piss off the moms. <laughs> that is a great point. I want to, I mean, and part of this, and I, I want to get your thoughts on this is it's not even so much about substance. It's a style of discourse, which is to say that it, it, there was, there was no room to say, you know what, your approach to merit-based education could be tweaked here. Here's what I think, or maybe we could open schools in a different way or approach this differently, because as soon as you go against some of these issues, thinking about on systemic racism and particularly on COVID in schools, you are anathematized. You are deemed a kind of deviant and a heretic. So I want to get your, I mean, if you could talk a little bit about the campaign from the Legal Aid Society and those in the Legal Aid Society against you for what were, as I see it, were, were kind of good faith criticisms. They were not but you were treated as you kind of had deviated from the revolution. I don't know how good faith they were. My critics, no, no, yours. I'm talking well, about your criticisms where, where, where you weren't like in it to like undermine everybody. You were saying, hey, maybe we should approach it this way. Or My, my criticisms of the plan to dismantle merit were not new or unique to me. I didn't right. invent anything new. I was saying things that lots of folks have said before me. Some have said it better than me, more clearly than me. And it is certainly not a white person's critique of the school system. There are a really staggering number of black, mostly conservatives, but not all conservatives who make a very, very like heartfelt and powerful critique of the whole idea that the way you solve for what you might call systemic racism is to dismantle high quality schools. And it's just gross, right? Like the, because it is at the end of the day, I, w- I want to answer your question more thoroughly, but yeah, yeah. on the education front at the edge of the day, I think what I came to realize is how damn racist the people who were calling me racist are, because at the end of the day, their solution for getting more black children into the most rigorous academic schools were to get rid of hard tests. Instead of saying, what are we doing wrong in- Yeah, I- Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut wrote a very good story about this approach. <laughs> It, oh, it's that what Harrison Berg. Yeah, yeah, the, right. The idea that like every, if you were yeah. you were strong, you had to wear weights and everything. My son read it in seventh grade, and it was so funny because we were going through. He's in tenth grade now, and we were going through this at the time. Yeah, and I had I had missed it in high school. I'd never read it in middle school or high school. But yeah, the the critiques, you know, they became it, very personal with you. I mean, that's the thing. They really saw so it was a character assassination. That I yeah. Saying. 
A hundred percent. And it started with a small group of people that were on the school board with me and, and people who, and then it expanded to include my, my employment, <laughs> my fellow unionized attorneys and the heads of my office and all the people in my office. But I will say that, and it was awful <laughs> and it's really gross and I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it also, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so it turns out that being called racist constantly and having people write horrible newspaper articles about you and, and release all these nasty statements about you didn't change my mind. I still think that every kid in New York City deserves a really high quality education where they can count on graduating from high school and being college ready if that's what they so choose to do. Not every kid needs to go to college, but if you want to go to college, New York City public schools should make you college ready by 12th grade, period, end of story. And the failure to do that is not on racist parents who are asking too much on behalf of their kids. Right, on right. Of the educators and the administrators and the politicians who've been failing all of our families for so long. So when it comes to that conversation, I think with regard to like my congressional race now, I just was in a forum last night where the people that don't like me, who are like hard on the left, right? The people who are really doubling down on drag queens and schools and on all of these sort of like bizarrely strange leftist ideas, they always they always come at me with the same thing, with these accusate with these culture war issues. I'm perfectly happy to talk about Israel or about the salt deductions that we should get restored in New York or about any of the issues that other congressional candidates are asked about. Mm -hmm. They come after me with this because it is their cudgel that they use to try to make people go away who are inconvenient. And that's what I've realized. And they they call me racist, they call me transphobic, and they call me Republican. <laughs> but the thing is, I think it is an enormously losing strategy on the Democrats part to call any Democrat who says, hey, public safety is a real issue and we have to address it. Public schools need to be good and we have to stop equity, social justice worrying about it. And affordability is not just going to be solved by social programs, we, programs that we have to deal with right. the economy. Those things, right, the economy, the schools and public safety you're going to cede all of that to Republicans. <laughs> you're going to say that those aren't issues that Democrats care about. Like, we're going to have a, a really consequential election in November this year. And to me, I just think that most of the people in New York, like the district I live in now, New York, 10, 86 percent to Biden in the in the presidential election. Mm -hmm. We are overwhelmingly registered Democrats in this district, not solely. There's Republicans and independents, too. But I just think there's no way that there's no future for the Democratic Party if we chase out of our party Democrats like me, because I am not sure. a, I am not a unicorn. I am not. Un, I'm I'm somewhat unique in my willingness to speak up so loudly and clearly about it. And that sort of I didn't really choose that. That got chosen for me. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I chose to run for my school board. I chose to stand up for merit based education. But I didn't sort of choose the lane of being of these folks trying to annihilate me and trying to character assassinate me and, and get me fired from my job and all of that. That wasn't my choice. Of course not. But it does. It creates a path for you and you can either choose to like run away from the conflict and go away, which is what their goal was, or you can choose to keep going forward. And that's what I chose. And in some ways, there's a parallel here, because if you are 
a Republican in a very red district and you say, you know, I, I've been reading up on some of these claims of election fraud and Joe Biden won the 2020 election. Right. The same kinds of tactics will be used to anathematize you. Yes. So in some ways you were like the Liz Cheney of New York City. <laughs> I didn't like that, but I give you. <laughs> you know, and I'm not you're obviously, right. I'm not saying you're you are not a Republican. I consider right. you obviously you're still a progressive and a liberal. But there is an issue here, which is that I think that you are a kind of I mean, it's why it's important. I want you to thrive because you are a your your persistence. Is a a great counter to a style of politics and discourse, which is based on getting everybody to say they agree with something they don't really agree with out of fear. Yes, 100%. And it is it is a politics of fear. It's a politics of like forced conformity and fear. And it's hard to stand up against that, especially in your profession, being a lifelong lawyer, living in New York and all of this. I'm sure it would have been a lot easier for you in your social circles to just sort of say, all right, I guess we won't have school for two years. Yeah, oh, of course. The... The thing that sometimes I do feel bad about is, and that makes me feel like I have to keep going, is that there are so many people who see what happened to me and they think, oh, I'm never going to stand up and <laughs> say what I actually think. Yeah, I'm no, right. It didn't have, right. The narrative. And a little bit, the more I say, like, I'm not going away. I'm here and my positions are reasonable and they don't make me a bad person. The, the fact that I want my subways to be safe enough for my kids to use them to get to school. So you want to send the kids on the subway right now? They go, I know, I, I, I drive my kids in the morning, my, my two of my kids. My husband takes another one of my kids, my oldest son. Mm -hmm. You know, like we've got four kids. We have a, a morning routine, but my, you know, and then on the, and they use a subway to come back from home, but they're with friends in the, right. so in the morning when they would be alone, you know, when my 14-year-old when would otherwise be alone, I now take her. Whereas when my older son was 14, he took the subway by himself in the morning. And because the subways have objectively gotten less safe, right? And that's not, and there's a narrative to say that you're, you know, I mean, ridiculous things get told. There are so many ridiculous reasons why people offer to try to tell you that you're not seeing what you're actually seeing before your eyes, right? right. And the subways are just less safe. They're less clean. They're, you know, walking down the street is less safe than it used to be particularly for women, particularly for Asian Americans in our city, like sure. there, there are people whose realities, you know, are being challenged. People are being told that, <laughs> you know, that what they're seeing right before their eyes is not happening. And so it becomes a weird act of defiance to just say the truth. Absolutely. Now, with a little bit of time we have left in this interview, I really want to try to get your sense of I am, I don't live in New York. I've written many, for, I wrote for many years for New York newspapers, so I feel a certain kinship with the city. How in the world is it possible that Bill de Blasio could be elected to anything after his last term as mayor? And you are running against him in the primary. So, I mean, are there, you're out there, you're talking to voters. Is there a chance that this guy could go to Congress? I have yet to talk to a single person who has anything good to say. All about right. Bill That's Blasio. good to know. Okay. But politics is a strange thing. He clearly has the best name recognition of anybody. That's uh, true. Yeah. In the race, even though there are, you know, big names in the race. It is a really hard race to handicap because for a couple of different reasons. One is there's 15 of us. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and even if you cut that number in half to the more. Is there anybody else in your lane of what, you know, common sense? 
No. Damn it. Okay. Nancy Ellis in my lane, who has been doing what I've been doing and who's been standing up and who's been articulating these values and fighting these fights. Right. And in fact, there are a whole slew of people, elected assembly people, elected city council people, you know, congressional folks who are all tripping over each other to show how progressive they are, how lefty mm-hmm. they are. And how, and it's, and I, again, progressive and lefty are words I used to use to describe myself, but what they mean in 2022 is something different than what they, what they used to mean. We are. Are, are you fighting to claim those words back saying I'm a real progressive and you're intolerant? Because you said before, it's amazing how racist the people who go on about a systemic racism are when they talk about schools. That's a very good point. But are you, are you trying to do that? Or are you just like, all right, you know what, if you're going to call me, call me, but let's deal with real problems here. Yes and no. Like, I don't really care if they wind up with the word progress. If the word progressive starts to mean leftist lunatic who that's fine. But I will say that just for clarity, like, I think it is deeply regressive to tell little girls that if they don't want to wear a dress or they want to cut their hair short, that they must be boys (laughs) and they should start changing their body to be like boys. The, 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 reinforcement and the reification of gender stereotypes for little oh my god yeah to support the trans kid narrative where did that come from it is deeply deeply regressive there's nothing progressive well i agree with you but like when did we start i i I, i'm not i have to say like i i'm not as freaked out as some people were when drag queen story hour it's not like i think it's the most important thing in the world but if communities want to have that at a public library i'm fine with letting the local community but when did this become like the hill that so many of the, the progressives would die on that we need to make sure that schools can give puberty blockers and hormones to yeah. 11 year olds? Uh, yeah. Really? Like, when did that become a civil rights issue? You know what I It's funny because you talk about language and reclaiming language. Yeah. I thought about this a lot. When I take a lot of heat for it, it would certainly be better to talk less about these things. But there are so many families that are suffering, like really suffering, because in addition to all the crazy policies, there's this really ugly narrative that like if your parents don't immediately affirm your trans. Yeah, you're going to commit suicide. Anything that's trying to drive a wedge between vulnerable children and their parents is something I want no part of. It's Soviet. Yes, very. And for me, I think what happens is, you know, when the first trans bathroom stuff got ginned up, I was full on like, oh, those terrible Republicans, like, you know, yeah, I, it was in North Carolina, I think. And it was like, you know, ugh, who, what does it matter if the person washing their hands in the bathroom stall next to you, wearing a dress and carrying their purse or how actually technically is a man. Like, so what, this is such a small number of people and a fairly vulnerable population. Like, just leave them alone. Stop trying to trick. That was my take on it when it all right. started. That was before female athletes were being told to move over and don't even open your mouth or complain about men competing against you. Mm-hmm. That was before people like Chesa Boudin, the recently outed district attorney, started telling female victims of violence and assault that they had to refer to their male assailant as she because that person has a gender do that yeah wow so and he's not alone like there is a you know sending may you know i've worked as a public defender for years i know the criminal court system really well sending convicted 
biological men. Yeah. Biological men to female prisons. Well, it was a progressive advancement 200 years ago when we decided to have separate prisons for men and women because we used to house people together in, in prisons. And it was a way to protect women prisoners. Right. Separate that housing. That's progressivism is saying like, we're not going to make, make this, you know, you're right. in jail because you've done something, but your sentence isn't to be raped by a fellow prisoner. Your sentence is to lose your liberty for a certain amount of time. Right. And so I don't think there's any, and we're being told that it's progressive to let men go into women's prisons because they feel like it, basically. Once yeah. you make gender identity the standard, it doesn't matter what, whether it's sincere or not. And there's really no way to know whether someone's gender identity is sincere or not, because it's a feeling and feelings aren't a, a a reasonable legal classification. But what I think, what I was trying to say about the language is because it started out with such a small group of people who did seem truly vulnerable, we all were willing to go along with the language. So calling men who wanted to be women trans women, right? They're not women, they're men. And our le- but no one fought the language battle back then. The idea that you're right. naming somebody, if you, if I say, oh, Bruce Jenner won these, this many gold medals or something, it's like people say, hey, you know, you're dead naming Bruce Jenner. You have to call Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner. Well, you know, if I met this human being, I would certainly say, hi, Caitlyn, how are you when I met them? But referring to Bruce Jenner, Bruce Jenner existed for many decades. So, but people, progressives in particular, and, and people of the left, want to always be on the side of the right and be good and help marginalized people and help vulnerable people. And that's a good thing, right? That's actually a thing the sure. left should be rightfully. Well, but they also are becoming the new Puritans and that we had 50 years ago, you know, people who were motivated as like evangelical Christians who were searching out examples of deviancy outside of their own community and then trying to get the state basically to punish it or ban it or something like that. Well, now the tables have turned and the new people who were hunting heretics, whether it's on trans issues or race issues, or frankly, I would add to that, you know, a lot of the hysteria in the first couple of years of Trump on Russia, mm-hmm. where you saw is it's it's the same kind of moral panic mm-hmm. and the desire to not only be fighting for the right or fighting for justice, which is everybody thinks is good, mm-hmm. but to be identifying the deviants, to be identifying the obstacles. And that's the thing. And they turn on very good people like you. And that becomes part of the kind of political ritual. It's, it's, it's awful. And that's why you're so important to standing because you're standing up to it. It's, I mean, it's we need more of you. <laughs> I do think it is a bit of a political ritual at this point. Yeah. The things that I think is pretty gross is if you look at going back to the race topic, if you look at racism in America, my God, like how going from our actual founding, you know, over 200 years sure. ago to now we have come such a long way and done such amazing things and if you look at the rest of the world there's real slavery out there like there are people that are even on policing there has been enormous and you know because you were a public defender that the amount of 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 institutions that were created whether they were ombudsmen or oversight Mm -hmm. as a result of real police brutality and i'm just saying not perfect but it's it's to pretend that none of that happened. Right. It's just it's like it, it, that's also kind of Soviet in a way. It's like pretending, negating history. There's a lot of people pretending that America is this horrific, irredeemable nation. 
and they're closing their eyes and ignoring the horrors in the rest of the world. China yeah. is getting away scot-free with, Wait, all with actual horrific, genocide, with right. actual genocide and with human rights violations that are horrendous. And with, you know, their COVID lockdowns do make ours look a little nicer, but they're all awful. <laughs> yeah. And I just think that like people didn't, it, it, no one had a crystal ball. So when you didn't object to the language 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago, you're behind the eight ball now when the language is so problematic. Yeah. And when we have our kids being steeped, the thing for me that's a real big issue and what I think needs to be a, gen, a real fight is that kids have the right to go to school. The children of conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats and agnostic people like all, should be, all be able to send their kids to a public school and just get an education that's appropriate. They should not be places of political indoctrination. And certainly in New York City, we see a lot of that. I want to end with this one question, which is that I completely understand 50 years ago with second wave feminism and Betty Friedan, why the phrase the personal is political happened, because it was an unequal sort of status that women had that were responsible for being homeowners. They were treated, you know, like sexual objects in the workplace. And so things that used to be sort of said, hey, why are you making all this political were indeed political because women had to fight for equal status in so many ways. And I'm not saying it, the, the, the struggle is over, but right. there has been progress. But to a certain extent, now that everything seems political, mm -hmm. is that part of the problem, which is that there is no space where we can just be neighbors? It's a huge part of the problem. And that's part of the character assassination. No one. Yes. The people who what I said to you at the very beginning is that I have this little merry band of haters who like to show up wherever I am and just yeah. attack me because they can't stand the fact that I have withstood their efforts to make me go away. And it's but, made you stronger in a lot of ways. I mean, absolutely. But these people never have good faith conversations with me about merit-based admissions, about trans policies in our school, about even things like you know, our tax policy in New York City, we have a, we had for a long time in, during COVID um, an eviction moratorium, which was devastating for small property owners and small landowners. Big corporations can withstand it much better than small property owners. Let's talk about those issues. They're important to our community, but it's always an attack on me as a person that I'm a bad person because I have the wrong views and because I, I, right. I approach marginalized communities in the wrong way and I say the wrong things. But that constant attack is both a way to avoid an actual real conversation. Sure. And it's also so goddamn boring. <laughs> it is so <laughs> boring. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, with that, I know you got to go. I just want to urge our listeners. First of all, if you like this podcast, it's new. Give us five stars, write a nice review. But if you live in New York 10, vote legally for Maud. Okay. We like need her in Congress and we need her to prevail because these are powerful where these are powerful lessons that need to be kind of learned at this point. It's very important that Chesa Boudin was voted out. And I think it's very important that Maude uh, Marin is voted in. So if you are in New York 10, that's Chinatown, the village, Soho. And, and August, what is it? August 17th? Yeah, August 23rd. Sorry, my bad. August 23rd. Oh, you're right. The though. There's, there's early voting. There's 10 days of early voting. Before. So 10 days of early voting. Vote legally if you if you're hearing this in new york because we i would love to, i would love to meet you next in washington where i am 
as a new congresswoman from New York 10. Thank you so much for coming on the Reeducation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.